Psalm chapter 46. God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not be afraid, though the earth trembles and the mountains topple into the depths of the seas, though its water roars and foams and the mountains quake with its turmoil. There is a river, its streams delight the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is within her. She will not be toppled. God will help her when the morning dawns. Nations rage, kingdoms topple. The earth melts when he lifts his voice. The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come see the works of the Lord, who brings devastation on the earth. He makes wars cease throughout the earth. He shatters bows and cuts spears to pieces. He sets wagons ablaze. Stop your fighting and know that I am God, exalted among the nations, exalted on the earth. The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. So I want to I want to try and make a little light of this hot day. My my grandma told me that if you're sweating in church, pray that the air conditioner is working. And uh, so I just want you to know it's it's only working moderately today. And if you're if you're new here, if this is not your home church, this is your first or second time, you should know that I'm not the typical teaching pastor. Um, I'm a I'm an elder candidate. Um, my myself and my friend Oscar and our teaching pastor is on sabbatical, and we're very thankful for that. Sabbatical is like it comes from the same root word as Sabbath, so it's a, it's a time of rest. And so we're excited that he's, <coughs> excuse me, enjoying this time of rest, and we're looking forward to having him back, hopefully soon. So with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we pray for our pastor. We pray for his family. We pray that this rest is sinking in deeply and that they're starting to get excited about coming back. Um, I pray, Father that these words today, that they be your words, that there's no Brian in this, that this is all, this is all you. And so, Father, you know I've labored. You've know, you know that this has been fun for me. And, and here's, as they say, where the rubber meets the road. So I just pray that, that, that it's put into a format that, that folks can hear it, can understand it. Their hearts are softened and their appetites are just, just made hungry for more of you and your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Martin Luther, I think that's a name most of us know. He's best known for his 95 Thesis, which is a list of complaints, essentially, that he had, and he nailed to a church door in the year 1517. And he did that because he had serious concerns about his beloved Catholic church. And as he voiced his concerns, the church leadership began to attack him. And so it was, <coughs> excuse me, a little bit of a back and forth. For comfort and strength, Luther would often turn to the Psalms, especially Psalm 46. It's recorded that in some of his darkest moments, he would turn to friends and he would say, come let us sing the 46th Psalm and let the devil do his worst. Psalm 46 is also where Luther got the words and the inspiration for the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And, and that's one of the early Reformation's most famous, most well-known hymns. And so it was interesting to me that for somebody like Luther, probably somebody like us, the Psalms are where he went, and that's probably where we should go when we feel alone or in trouble or at the end of our rope. 
I also think the Psalms are terribly important. And I think that knowing why they were written and who has read them, (coughs) excuse me, might just help us remember things like um, why this should be important in our own lives. So before we dig into the actual psalm, I wanted to draw your attention to the, the heading. And it says, for the choir director, a song of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth. Now, I'm sure we all recognize what a choir director is. I mean, this is a song, right? And according to the Alamoth, is referring to instruments, telling the choir director that this song is to be played and sung soprano, or thank you very much, Haji, to, uh, to be sung soprano or in a high pitch. But it's the middle part that I really want to draw your attention to, a song of the sons of Korah. Who here in this audience enjoys genealogy? Right? We all have families. We're all curious. At least I think we should all be curious about our families. And what if, as you learned about your ancestors, you discovered that maybe one of them was on the Mayflower, or one of them was some tin pot dictator in a small country you'd never heard of, or maybe one of them was a bank robber, right? I mean, we're all looking for something a little spicy in our genealogies. And so what if you learned that your ancestors picked a fight with God and one of his most well-known and famous prophets And in the process, most of them died in a massive earthquake. I think that would be something we would want to know, don't you think? And so because we would want to know that, that's the story of Korah. You see, Korah is a real person. He's mentioned in the book of Numbers, which is the fifth book of our our Old Testament. And Korah was a Levite. And the Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Levites were set aside to be the priestly tribe for the other 11. And Levi himself, he had three sons. And this is important because we're going to talk about one of those sons. And one of Levi's sons was a guy named Kohath, which was the grandfather of Korah. And so as they traveled around the desert for 40 years, I think we all know that, each of Levi's sons had a different job. Son number one and son number two were responsible for tearing down and setting up the outside of the tabernacle. That's where the tabernacle is where God was said to be and would meet with his people. And they would load all of those things, the poles, the the cloth, everything, they would load it onto wagons and then they would cart it off and go to the next spot. But son number three, and this is the one we're focusing on today, Kohath, His family, they got the really special stuff. You see, they got the ceremonial stuff, the stuff that was inside the tabernacle. So they got things like the the lampstand. They got the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant contained the tablets with the Ten Commandments. At the top of it was the mercy seat of God, which was said where you would meet God himself. So to be part of this tribe, part of this family, was a huge blessing, a huge honor. But there's a catch in that blessing. Because those items were so, so precious, God decreed that they could never be touched by human hands. And they had to be wrapped in special cloths and put in special coverings. And then the second thing is they couldn't be placed on the wagon like all the other stuff. They actually actually had to be physically carried on the backs of Kohath and his relatives. So you can imagine a great conflict here, right? The first thing is, this is clearly a great honor. God says, essentially, this stuff is the most special of my things, and I'm entrusting you, you people right here, to carry this. 
But the area of conflict comes in when you realize that it's backbreaking and arduous. And it's so backbreaking that after a time, Korah, remember, that's Kohath's grandson, no longer sees the honor in it. And he starts to get focused more on the labor of it than the honor. <clears throat> he actually begins to covet the other priest's roles because he wants to put, at least put his stuff on a cart. So Korah was a bit of a malcontent in this context. And what he did, rather than pray to God, rather than talk to his, his leader, is he went around and he enlisted 252 of his buddies to challenge Aaron and Moses because, darn it, they deserve a better job. What do you know? We deserve it. I mean, can you imagine? It takes a lot of nerve to go to the guy that parted the Red Sea the guy that, that kind of had a face-to-face -face with God and tell him, you don't know what you're doing. But that's exactly what he did. So out there in the desert, Moses and these malcontents, they essentially have a standoff. Moses does what prophets do. He appeals to God. He prays. He gets down on his knees, and God is not happy. So God tells Moses, and God directs Korah to gather all of his malcontent friends. So it's Korah and 252 people in an assembly where he's going to meet with them. And at the assembly, Moses gives a speech. And well, here's what happens. Number 16 says, this is Moses we're talking about. Just as he finished speaking all these words, the ground beneath them split open. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them in their households. All Korah's people and all their possessions they went down alive into Sheol with all that belonged to them. The earth closed over them, and they vanished from the assembly. Boom. The earth swallows them whole. But there's an interesting side note here, because it appears that God, God is a just God, and God has mercy. And he didn't hold those accountable that did not sin. Numbers 26.11 specifically tells us that the sons of Korah were spared maybe because they were too young to have understood what was happening, or maybe they respected God's authority and wanted none of Korah's rebellion. We, we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But we do know that they were spared, which is really good for a lot of reasons. And one of them is that the prophet Samuel, who we all know so well, is actually descended from the Kohathites. And he later plays a crucial role in, among other things, he anointed David as Israel's second king. So remember that David is Israel's second king. <clears throat> so the sons of Korah, therefore, were firsthand witnesses to God's awesome power, and they know better than most what God is capable of. So now we're going to flash forward. We're going to touch on three time periods here. So now we flash forward all the way to 701 BC. If David was the second king, now, years later, is the 13th king, a man named Hezekiah. And as our story picks up, the good king Hezekiah has an enemy by the name of King Sennacherib of Assyria. Sennacherib is all about expansion and imperialism. And in this story, Sennacherib is leading his army through Syria, through Israel, on south into Judah. Now, Sennacherib and his people, they're not good. They don't worship Yahweh. They worship things of stone and metal. And they're merciless. <clears throat> They've already defeated the king of northern Israel. They've carried off his people or worse. And now the bloodthirsty army of Assyria is on the march headed towards Egypt. And anyone or anything that gets in their way is bound to be destroyed. 
But at the same time, King Hezekiah, he's the king of Judah, and he's leading a great revival on behalf of God. He's assisted by the prophets, you'll know these names, Isaiah and Micah. And Isaiah and Michael teach Hezekiah to trust God and do what's right. And in 2 Kings 18, we, we see this, talking about Hezekiah now. He did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. Hezekiah relied on the Lord God of Israel. Not one of the kings of Judah was like him, either before him or after him. He remained faithful to the Lord and did not turn from following him, but kept the commands the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him, and wherever he went, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria, and he did not serve him. So standing in Sennacherib's way is this tiny kingdom of Judah. And Judah and its kingdom are inside this city called Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is known as the walled city. And so imagine the army of Syria has surrounded all of Jerusalem and they begin to taunt and blaspheme the inhabitants and their God. And here is part of what they said is recorded in 2 Kings. For Sennacherib, the royal spokesman stood and called out loudly in Hebrew, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says, don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He can't rescue you from my power. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to rely on the Lord. I mean, this if you remember, this sounds a little bit like the movie 300, but on steroids, right? This is like the big show-off or the big showdown. And the Assyrians, you should know, are really the worst of the worst. They're merciless with their enemies. Um, they would often put heads and bodies on poles and march them around for people to see. If they caught you alive, they would do something called flaying you. And flaying you is when they actually would make a cut in your skin and peel your skin off while you were still alive. It was a very slow and excruciating death. And, you know, as, as I was putting this together and, and trying to get my history straight, it made me imagine something. It made me imagine like Lord of the Rings, you know, the Battle of Helm's Deep where it's, it's scary and it's like it looks like there's no way they can do this. And yet they, proceed, or they pursue um, forward. And Sennacherib delivers a letter to Hezekiah. He threatens everybody and all the people telling them to either surrender or die. And the prophet Isaiah goes to Hezekiah and tells him, ignore Sennacherib. Take the letter to the house of the Lord and pray. That's what you need to do. So here is the end of Hezekiah's prayer, as documented again in 2 Kings. Now, Lord our God, please save us from his power so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are God, you alone. So do you have a picture? The Assyrian army has surrounded Jerusalem. They've said, either you come out or we're coming in, and we're bringing torture and death with us. Hezekiah is vastly outnumbered. And he responded by following his prophet Isaiah's advice, praying to God for delivery. And let's look at what happens next, because this is amazing. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. That's a victory, right? That's a victory. 
and the sons of Korah, they were there when this happened, and they penned this psalm, and they wrote about how great their God is. So this psalm, Psalm 46, reflects that battle, reflects those feelings, reflects where they were headed and, and where they ended in three stanzas. And it's interesting because it's a battle in which we know they didn't lift a finger, but instead relied entirely on God. And and here's what they learned, and here's what I want us to learn. The first thing is God protects us in life's storms. He's there for us. Our first verse, God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. You see, it's interesting to me because we have the same God today that they had then. He's the very same. Our God is timeless. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And I know life is messy sometimes. Trouble, trouble often finds us. But our God protects us because he is our refuge and our strength. And it says here, that verse, a helper who is always found. So I don't, I don't speak or read Hebrew. This is where I, I look it up. I try to figure it out. I, I research other people. But I want you to know that in my studies, I discovered the Hebrew word used here is the word for helper. It's called ezer. And that's the same word that God used for woman when she was made to help man. God is our helper. He is our ally. And he's our rescuer. And the next two words that appear there are, are Mayo and Masao. Now, Mayo means exceedingly, much, a lot, but it means it with like a ton of emphasis. One theologian says that Mayo is like saying much muchness. And the next word is Masao. Masao means to define something, to discover something, to experience it but in a way that you have to go through it to actually understand. So Linda knows this. I like to watch hunting shows on TV. Linda calls it whisper TV because all the dialogue is like this. Do you see that deer? Here comes the ducks, right? And so there's usually a scene at the end of each episode where the hunter has been successful and in their excitement, they're shaking with adrenaline. Now, Linda, she thinks it's a little bit silly, but I would say you have to experience it to understand. Another example that might resonate with more of you is, parents, remember that first time you held your baby and you looked in his or her eyes? Can you honestly, can you really describe how it felt? to people who've never had that experience. It's one of those things you just have to be there. It's Masao. So God is basically saying here, I'm here for you. Come to me and experience my much muchness. Now, some of you in the audience may have experienced God's much muchness, but many of us have not. Some of us are going through things that terrify us but I want you to know that the much muchness of God is yours if you seek him. The next verse says, therefore we will not be afraid. Though the earth trembles and the mountains topple into the depths of the seas, 
though its waters roar, roar, though its waters roars and foams, and the mountains quake with its turmoil. Now, to the ancient Jews, mountains represented stability and strength. They were immovable. In oceans, they represented chaos and fear. They were deep and dark, and you never knew when a storm was going to come or a wave was going to come hit you. And the psalmist here describes a scenario of earth-ending chaos. The mountains, the things that I think are immovable, are being toppled into the seas of chaos. All is lost, help me, Lord. But God comforts. And the author says, even in the midst of all this horror, I will not be afraid. And the first stanza, it ends with that little word, Selah. It's a silent word. It's one we don't typically say out loud. And I know you know this, but I think it's so important to point out that this is where the author asks you to sit in silence and contemplate what you've just heard. So this isn't meant to be read like a book where you just speed through it. This is meant to be read in a chunk, and then you think, and you meditate, and you pray. And honestly, that's my prayer for you. But if I'm being honest, that's my prayer for me. I've certainly felt like the world was ending. I've, I've, I've believed the mountains were crashing down on top of my head. And yet the psalmist is here to remind us that God is our helper. And he wants me to slow down and think about it. But back to our, our Helm's Deep reference, back to, back to Jerusalem. Imagine the stress of being surrounded you look out over the walls of your fortress and you see the Assyrian warriors. And as they get close, you see that they're wearing necklaces and on their necklaces are the cut-off noses and ears of people they have recently conquered. I told you they were nasty people. <clears throat> but the sons of Korah, the prophets Isaiah and Micah and King Hezekiah, they know God's power and declare, no matter what you do, no matter what I see, I will not be afraid because my God is in control. And so our second stanza teaches us that God gives us peace in life's storms. You see, when Psalm 46 was written, the prevailing tactic for attacking armies was to surround the city they wanted to conquer and not allow food or water to enter. Now, the average person can only go three days without water which is why the Assyrians, in part of their taunt, tell Hezekiah that he will soon be eating and drinking his own excrement and urine. These are not nice people. And because of this, many of the cities were built with a river or stream running through them. But that also puts you at a tactical disadvantage because most rivers and streams are in the low ground, what we would call the bottom of the valley. You see, tactically, it's almost always better to have the high ground so for a city on a hill, a city like Jerusalem, water is really important, but also really hard to get. And you should know that Jerusalem has no river through it. And yet the psalmist says, there is a river. Its streams delight the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. Do you know what I think the author's describing here? I think, I think he's coming alongside with John's vision 800 years later as we see in the book of Revelation. So let's take a look at that vision where John tells us, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And just in the very next chapter, look what's flowing right through our city. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. You see, early church father Augustine talked about two cities. He talked about the city of God and the city of man. And the city of God is the heavenly realm where we're going to be going after we leave the city of man because that's where we're living today. And Revelation tells us that we will live with Jesus in eternity when we get there. And when we get there, he's going to wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be things of the past. And we're going to have a river coming out of God's throne and of the Lamb, and that is Jesus himself, who's known elsewhere in Scripture as the fountain of living water. Verse 5 says, God is within her. She will not be toppled. God will help her when the morning dawns. You, me, God's people, we may currently live in the city of man, but we're destined to be with him in the city of God. I know, I feel it, but does it sometimes feel like the enemy has us surrounded? Does it sometimes feel like we don't have any hope? Well, God says, look at me. Look at the place I've prepared for you. You have immeasurable, incalculable hope. Imagine being back in Jerusalem where you're surrounded by the army of orcs from Lord of the Rings. Hezekiah's fighting men, they probably would have slept in shifts, but everyone else, the women, the children, those too old or too young to fight, they try to stay awake, but they doze off fitfully. And as the morning dawns, they're still alive. Can you imagine the wonder at seeing your enemy vanquished? without lifting a finger? Can you imagine the wonder of that sun coming up when you think, this is it, we're not going to make it through the night? You know, we actually have a, a national anthem that touches on that. One of the lines in that anthem, it says, by the dawn's early light, what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming. And that line, it's about a battle raging. And the author, Francis Scott Key, is in that fortress. And he's having a hard time staying awake. And as he falls asleep, he doesn't know if his friends and what they stand for in that moment are going to make it through that dark night. And suddenly, he doesn't even know he's fallen asleep, but he wakes. And he sees the sun coming up. And he sees, in that moment, his flag flying. And he experiences the mayo and the masao, the much-muchness and the indescribable joy of the moment. I told you we live in the city of man. And in the city of man, that river represents our security. And that dawn represents our joy. But in the city of God, you don't have to worry about those things. They're ever present and they're eternal. Verse six tells us, Nations rage, kingdoms topple. The earth melts when he lifts his voice. 
The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. So right now, today, nations are raging all around us. Ukraine and Russia are still at war. Ethiopia is in a civil war. For those who watch the deeper news, Niger, they had a coup last week and their government was toppled. There seemingly is no peace, and yet, in God's timing, it will stop when he simply lifts his voice. And the problem with that is, do we really believe it? If we don't believe it, where does that insecurity in each of us come from? Because when it seems like all is lost, when everyone and everything around you is failing or falling, God's still there. He's the same yesterday as he is today. And the sons of Korah knew it when they wrote the song, and we should know it too. So let me take you back to Genesis real quick for fun. Then God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water for water. And what happened? Exactly. Do you see it? God just says. He just said it. And it happened. You see, God's voice booms like thunder, and like lightning, it melts the earth. And that's because we're not in control, but He sure is. He controls the mountains, the things that we think are immovable. And if He wants, He can throw them into the sea. He also controls the armies. And we may not understand His ways, but He wants us, you, His people, to know his much muchness. Life's troubles often feel really big, but it's often because we make ourselves big and we make God small. But the opposite is what truth is. In about a dozen places in Scripture, the Lord is called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? I mean, we've seen that. It's, it's probably something ingrained in most of our, our minds. And that's because God repeated the Abrahamic covenant to three different generations. Abraham, his son Isaac, and Isaac's son Jacob. So why in verse 7 does the psalm refer only to Jacob here? Well, I have a theory. You see, Abraham was Jacob's grandfather, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Unlike Abraham, though, Jacob often faltered in his faith. Jacob was a conniver and deceitful. He stole his brother Esau's birthright. And on the night when he believed that Esau was going to come back for revenge and kill him, God met him first. And after Jacob literally wrestled with God, Jacob found himself crippled and had a new name. His new name was Israel. You see, the name Jacob in Hebrew means deceiver. But his new name, Israel, means wrestles with God. And Israel, wrestles with God, became the father of a great nation. But he only became the father of a great nation after learning to be dependent on his God. I think we can learn a lot from a conniver and a deceiver when we finally realize that God is the one that's in control. You see, the storms rage, but God, God, our third point, will silence those storms. He's all-powerful. He brings peace and destruction with the word. But we need to trust him. 
If I asked you, what are you fearing right now in your life? I think most of us could probably come up with something. What situation are you trying to control? The world is falling apart, and God's saying to us, his people, I've got it. I'm right here. Come to me. And verse 8 says, Come see the works of the Lord, who brings devastation on the earth. He makes wars cease throughout the earth. He shatters bows and cuts spears to pieces. He sets wagons ablaze. And we say, yeah, but the enemy's right outside my house. And God says, I know. And we say, yeah, but my finances are a mess. I'm really in debt. And God says, I know. And we say, but my relationships, my marriage, it's falling apart. And God says, I know. I've got this. I'm here. And in his much-muchness, God did us something that should be mind-blowing to all of us. But I think we often, we often don't sit, we don't use that say law, we don't think about it enough. And what he did is, is Jesus. And Jesus said to us, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I know it sometimes feels like the Assyrians are all around us and that worry becomes a consuming fire. I'm telling you, God can put out that fire but you have to turn to him. Verse 10 says, stop fighting and know that I am God. Exalted among the nations, exalted on earth. The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. He's, He's calling us to action here, but the action he's calling us to is to stop it. Just stop. I'm in charge, he says. Other versions say, be still and know that I am God. You know, on the uh, Enneagram, for those of you familiar, I'm an eight. It's not always good. I'm type A. I'm take charge. Young Brian needed control. Older Brian is trying to mellow out. I'm trying to be still, but I'm not good at it. You see, because if I'm King Hezekiah and the most feared army in the world is right outside my door, I gather a bunch of fighting men and I do my best to fight. But that's not what Hezekiah did. He knew that the Lord was with him and he knew the God of Jacob would protect him and his people, whether here or in the hereafter. So instead of thinking he could fix it with action, He prayed, and the Lord sent his army. And I I don't know if you caught this when I read it, but I want you to know that when the Lord sent his army, it was an angel of one. One angel wiped out 185,000 warriors. Selah indeed, right? 
we should think about that kind of power. Be still and know that I am God <clears throat> reminds me of another time when God demonstrated some awesome power. In Matthew 8, we learn about Jesus. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. And Jesus replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he, Jesus, got up and rebuked the wind and the waves and it was completely calm. One of the names that Jesus is known by is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is God come down to earth to live among us. So it's no surprise that when he speaks, nature, wind, waves, mountains, obey him. And every day we worry and fret over things that we can't control is a wasted day. Worrying about tomorrow only ruins today. Put your faith in God. You see, God didn't create you, then save you, just to abandon you. Let me, let me say that one more time. He didn't create you, then save you, just to abandon you. I know, like, G, like Jacob, we are deceivers at heart, and we wrestle with God, trying to make him do the things that we want. But thank goodness, God is patient, and he is just. So because of our deceiving nature, because of our restless nature, he did something radical, something of great price. That's Jesus. He sent his son to absorb the wrath that our deception, our sin calls for. And in my sin, I was God's enemy. <clears throat> but Jesus died so that I could live. The tomb still sits empty because Jesus conquered death. He invites us to be with him. And as he told us in that verse above, his burden is light. So I don't know if you ever feel like you're holed up in a fortress surrounded by Assyrians. That seems like a lot to me. I don't know if you've ever been in a boat and the waves are crashing over it and you think it's about to sink. But Hezekiah during that circumstance with the fortress, slept and found peace because God was in control and he knew it. Jesus, while he slept in that boat, was in full control because he does what the Father wants. He respects the Father. He and the Father are united with the Spirit and they are in control. First Thessalonians says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. So I ask you, embrace his much-muchness and have confidence that he is God. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. 
for meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.